the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio for our special summer programming. First off, we are bringing you Susan Price, speaking about the significance of May 1968 in France and the central role that students played in the struggle. Had it not been for the students and them having fought those pitch battles with police to defend themselves against the attacks by police, um, you know, the response of workers in coming out, you know, against that level of police violence really did, you know, was the key, I guess, ingredient that made made the May June sixty eight uprising what it was. Um, in you know, all things considered and the limitations and, you know, as Hall has already outlined, the sort of factors that unfortunately weren't present that allowed things to actually, you know, proceed into a full blown revolutionary situation <laughs> in France. But it's it it did get very close and I think the you know, for those, I guess those of us, I mean, I was born in 66, so I was two years old when it happened, and, um, you know, it's not in my living memory, um, to be quite honest, but I guess for most people, May June 68 is not part of their living memory, and for a lot of us who've lived, you know, through the decades of the 70s, been active through the 80s, 90s, and onwards, um, you know, there haven't been a lot of wins for our side um, that we can point to in sort of examples like um, May, June 68. So it's really important, I think, to to take the time to actually study this particular um, example because what it does do is it is it reiterates the fact that you can struggle and make huge gains. You can actually, if the conditions are right and all of the, the subjective forces, you know, the, the forces of resistance... Um, are there as well, particularly influenced by revolutionary anti-capitalist ideas, um, and particularly uh, with you know roots within the working class. Um, you know, then then actually the prospects for for making fundamental social change are there. And I think certainly you know in even a country like Australia today, you could say that objectively conditions are ripe for revolt, um, and we see breakouts happening. From time to time, even in our own country, um, against you know the government for high wages, we saw a fantastic example of uh, that kind of you know mobilisation in Melbourne on the 9th of May. You know, 120,000 workers out on the street. Now, you know, 100% of those workers who were on strike that day were actually breaking the law um, in doing so. You know that, and that I think is an important uh, it's an important milestone in terms of the 
the movement, um, the movement to oppose the anti-union laws in Australia. But, you know, you imagine that kind of thing, <coughs> not just multiplied a hundred times, but multiplied by a hundred days, you know, um, continuous mobilisations of that kind of calibre happening across a country, um, you know, at the height of May, June 68. I mean, the French working class was only 15 million people at that time, and 10 million were on strike. So that just, you know, it just goes to show how, um, how significant... Uh, you know that 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 uh, that crisis was, and it really was a political crisis that erupted as a result of the mobilisations. I mean, the interesting thing, you know, in terms of this question of dual power, it didn't get to that stage, but I guess there were some very interesting, you know, uh, embryonic structures, if you like, starting to develop. And Hall mentioned you know, <coughs> some of the strike committees that were um, set up in the in the factories, that unfortunately. Uh, you know, didn't have sufficient, you know, coordination, and I, you know, a lot of that was down to the the lack of, or you know, the fact that the revolutionary left was small and didn't have sufficient influence amongst um, the working class to actually start to argue for those sorts of things to happen. Um, you know, whereas I think in the student movement it was different. I think there was there was certainly a lot more influence of the revolutionary left in that movement. But um, at the height of May, June 68, there was something like 450 action committees, as they were called, set up just in Paris alone. Um, so, you know, across the country, who knows, 10, 20 times more than that, um, um, possibly. Um, so, you know, it was, it was starting to, to become a situation. I mean, even in, uh, I think it was Nantes, um, the uh, action committee there took over... Um, uh, a central strike committee there, representing workers, farmers and student unions, actually set itself up in the town hall of Nantes and um, became the actual municipal authority of that city um, at, uh, during the period. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, you know, that was where you started to actually see these possibilities of dual power, but it, this was an isolated, um, uh, isolated example of that. Um, <clears throat> okay. Yes, so so it was a political crisis. I mean, de Gaulle's government basically hung in the balance, and at one stage, de Gaulle actually disappeared um, from view, and um, uh, you know consulted with loyal elements of the French military, um, and also uh, is reported to have travelled to Germany to actually talk to the German um, military heads there about possible military intervention from Germany into France if, if, things, you know, if things actually uh, continued. So, um, uh, you know, the decision to dissolve the National Assembly and actually call elections for late June was a kind of decisive move by de Gaulle um, to try to take the, you know, pull the rug out from underneath this... Um, uh, you know, revolt and to try to direct the anger and energy of both students, but probably more, more so the working class, into an electoral um, pathway. And that move was supported by the Communist Party um, of France. And that's, you know, when, when people talk about the betrayal of the Communist Party of France, you know, that's the sort of thing they're, that they're talking about. And as Hall's already mentioned, you know, the kind of campaign that de Gaulle ran in the election was very much centred on the law and order. We want to get things back to back to normal. You know, of course, 
you know, for, for the industrialists and all of the big capitalists in France, that's of course what they wanted because um, they, they couldn't uh, profit while their um, factories were occupied and while there was general, you know, unrest on the street and uh, the city uh, cities and the sort of French economy had been had been virtually brought to a halt. So, uh, so the, as well as de Gaulle running his law and order campaign, the Communist Party also reportedly ran a fairly much a law and order style um, election campaign. The far left groups were outlawed um, and actually prevented from standing in the election. Um, so, you know, basically it was a successful move, if you like, to try to uh, direct and divert energy um, uh, and anger into just, you know, um, this electoral uh, electoral uh, campaign. And and as, as comrades have already mentioned, uh, you know, de Gaulle was returned to power with an increased majority, which is kind of hard to believe, you know, when you yeah. think about um, what had just occurred in the months previously. But I guess, you know, I don't know, I mean, you can't make comparisons, but I just think of the, you know, the the Egyptian, the Arab Spring and the Egypt uprising, how, how things, you know, can turn practically on their heads um, overnight. If the, subject, if the subjective forces, that is the actual forces of resistance, the revolutionary system change forces, however you want to talk about them or think about them, don't have sufficient influence over a situation and routes um, across, the, across the masses of people um, to be able to, you know, to combat um, the forces of reaction. Um, so I guess, you know, I don't want to say too much more except to say, again, that, you know, I mean, well, it's interesting, 50 years later in France, we've got France insoumise, France unbowed, you know, a new uh, rebellion, a new revolt um, emerging there against the policies of neoliberalism um, that the, the current French government are implementing, uh, you know, and, and of course, we've ha we have had battles. We've had Gezi, we've had, you know, the Arab Spring, we've had outbreaks, you know, occurring across the world um, spontaneously against neoliberalism, against repression, um, against the denial of basic human, civil and democratic rights. But we haven't quite, you know, necessarily seen a situation where that has, you know, flowed into, uh, into a revolutionary upsurge that has, um, that has posed a, you know, real challenge to not only the government of the day, but to the actual capitalist system as a whole. I mean, interestingly, you know, just in terms of, I guess, student and university life in Australia today, I think the other, you know, similarly to, I think the Paul, Paul mentioned the, uh, you know, the, this, this idea that basically, um, well, I, I, think, I think the legacy of 68 has, has been a very conscious policy on behalf of advanced capitalist governments to try to not repeat or not allow yeah. a repeat of May, June 68. And, you know, slowly but surely, um, a, 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 a curbing, um, if not outright repression of student activism and organising that has actually accompanied that sort of policy over decades. And I think, you know, of course, voluntary student unionism was one very sharp, you know, blunt instrument that the, um, the government used firstly in Victoria and then uh, federally to, you know, completely undermine and, and destroy student organising on the campuses. And it certainly did have, I think, a major impact um, on the ability of students to organise. But also similarly, the fact that um, Ausstudy, 
isn't enough to live on. But most students today are actually working 20 or more hours a week just to support themselves through, through university. I mean, all of these sorts of things, you know, are actually partly why, you know, there's been a real, uh, you know, decline uh, in the level of student radicalism and student organising on campus. But having said that, you know, the progressive forces are, are still on campus and we know, you know, even though it might appear um, at first glance, you know, when, when we're feeling a bit despondent about things that students are just an apathetic lot, I think the opposite is actually true. I think just like the 120,000 workers that came out when their union said, let's do it, I think students are actually, you know, eager to struggle and can see that there are problems with the world and actually want to struggle to change the world, um, who still have that hope of a better future. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the situation that we face today is actually much more difficult. The terrain is a lot more challenging, I think, for the left. Um, and I, I guess that's, you know, impetus to find ways where we can to collaborate and combine our forces so that we can amplify our impact, particularly those of us who are fighting for system change, um, but also I think within the trade unions as well, you know, any opportunities that present themselves for the, the left and progressive forces to actually collaborate to try to challenge the sort of um, dampening influence of a lot of the trade union bureaucracy, which, you know, has its ties to the Labor Party and which likes to direct, you know, workers' anger into just re-electing Labor as the way to solve the problems <coughs> of the worker in Australia today. You know, we've been down that road before. We know where that leads. Um, you know, but there's the, you know, the, the struggle, one of the key, key lines, I guess, of battle today in the Australian working class is still um, that, that question of fighting that sort of dead hand of, um, of laborism and its impact on um, the Australian working class um, and, its, and its ability to, to struggle. That was Susan Price speaking about the significance of May 1968. She explored the significance of the historical events in France for social movements around the world today as part of a public forum on May 1968 recorded in 2018 in Sydney. You are listening to Green Left Weekly on FreeCR 855am or FreeCR Digital. Next up, we are going to hear from Kavita Krishna, an Indian feminist activist speaking about capitalism, misogyny and sexual violence. Thank you so much, all of you. I know that most of you know about the big mobilization. You can see one of the largest uh, protests that happened at uh, Delhi's India Gate so around December 20th and 21st of 2012. That was after this gang rape of this young woman in uh, Delhi that subsequently resulted in her death. I just want to share with you some thoughts because if I look back at our involvement in that movement, there are several things uh, that one can talk about now, one can see, and one can look at the impact it's had, uh, both good and bad, and assess all of that. So I'd just like to share some thoughts in the backdrop of that and hope that it's useful for those of you who are organizing here against uh, violence against women. I'd like to start, uh, however, by talking about how not to talk about rape in India. Because generally the way in which the international media has uh, uh, talked about uh, the incidences of rape in India uh, has been extremely problematic. Recently, after this instance of the two uh, young girls who were raped and strung up from a tree, 
uh, killed and strung up from a tree. So they, I got calls from various uh, media people and one of them was from the BBC in London for a radio program. So I couldn't really hear exactly who she was speaking to, the anchor, but uh, for somebody from the British Foreign Secretary's office. So uh, they spoke to her before they spoke to me. And the way the entire program was uh, organized was that it was about this incident in, in India, another incident, I think, of an honor killing in Pakistan, and another incident, a third incident of a really uh, horrendous violence against women in Sudan. So it talked about India, Pakistan, Sudan. That was the grouping. And it started by saying, let's, let's talk about, uh, you know, the problems that women face in some parts of the world, as though it's only in those parts of the world that the problems are faced. And then this anchor asked this woman who was from the Foreign Secretary's office about, uh, would, you, would you discontinue aid to these countries? Because, yeah. So, um, well, after they got back to me, uh, when she got back to me, uh, the anchor, the first thing, I mean, I was trying very hard not to be incoherent with rage, of course, but, uh, but uh, you know, I tried to tell her that, you know, how come you're able to group Pakistan, India, Pakistan, and Sudan together? Why not group India, Pakistan, and California together? Or uh, India, you know, India, Pakistan, Sudan, and California together, or something like that. Clearly, it's because then you can't ask somebody in, uh, uh, in the British government, oh, uh, would you discontinue aid to America? Would you stop taking aid from America? You can't do that. So, so clearly that grouping, you know, including California and that would uh, sort of screw up your, uh, your, 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 your neat picture of, uh, uh, you know, uh, violence against women in certain parts of the world being a sort of uh, white person's burden, white government's burden. And that's the whole problem. Then, of course, I also talked about, uh, you know, what's British aid and what kind of violence it is you know, complicit with, which I'll come to later. Uh, but one of the really encouraging things I'm seeing uh, lately has been the give and take and the sharing uh, and the solidarity is not only between movements, but also the kind of resonance that certain, you know, certain individuals who've been writing uh, have had across countries. For instance, very recently there was an article, and I'll recommend it to all of you because it's a very powerful writing, by someone called Estelle uh, Tang. I think she's from Melbourne, and she now lives in New York. So she's written something called an open letter to, her, uh, open letter to my male friends. Have, has any of you come across it? Yeah, some of you have. Yeah, so do, do read it definitely because it's a very powerful piece, very, very simply written. And she writes about the daily experience of sexual harassment on the streets that she faces in New York. And she talks about how it may have been worse than what she faced in Melbourne, but how her friends in Australia also do face catcalling and so on. But she talks about how it is constant in America. And for me, that was an eye-opener. And also, uh, you know, for people reading in India, you know, you could have just substituted New York with Delhi in each of those instances or any so many Indian cities, and it would have been the same. Constant harassment, and you have to think every time, how do I respond to this? In India, very often you're asked, oh, why didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you file a complaint? And Estelle Tang addresses this. She said, you know, if I were to do this, I would be doing little else all day. It would be, I'd have a much shorter and much more annoying day because I'd be doing uh, nothing else. There would be so many instances of this. Then she also writes about, uh, so how, how, how our decision has to be made every single time. How do I respond? Will I ignore it? And she says about, you know, ignoring it in the context of the California incident, 
she talks about the fact that, I'll just read out, she says, every time a man whistles me up on the street murmuring that I'm gorgeous or sexy, I ignore him. Doesn't that mean that I'm rejecting him too? Could I be in the same kind of danger one day at the receiving end of some Elliot Rogers who thinks that he has to take revenge against women who are rejecting him? And of course she goes on to say uh, to her men friends that I know you may not be the guys who are doing this out there. I'm not trying to hold you responsible for all of that. I'm just trying to explain to you what it is like to be a woman. And she also says I'm not asking you to become my personal vigilante force either or anything like that. Which is also important because a lot of men in the Indian context do feel they have to do that, that they have to be these protective uh, men running to the rescue of women. So, so much of this resonated where you didn't have to keep thinking about, oh, this is India. You could, act, or, you know, you, you could talk about uh, what is similar between India and New York and uh, how women tackle this daily and more about what's common and what's shared in our experience of violence rather than uh, what is you know, unique and exotic to India. That said, of course, we in India would be very, very uh, conscious of what are the specific coordinates of misogyny and patriarchy in India, what is, uh, how is it structural in India in a specific way. It isn't enough to say it is rooted in uh, uh, patriarchy or capitalism or whatever. You do need to understand exactly how it is rooted in Indian society and um, how do we fight it there. So we have to understand how caste works in India and uh, how uh, gender and uh, class are interwoven with caste in order to structure Indian society. So we did a lot of that. I just wanted to share something in the context of our experience of 2012 and 2013 in India. In the context of the discussion and the debate which was mentioned here about what's going on in Australia, some of the discussions and debates you've been having here, I was thinking about some groups on the left feeling that maybe reclaim the night marches, things of that kind, would tend to focus on uh, demanding greater policing or more uh, CCTV cameras and so on. And uh, be sure that's the case even in India. A large number of the protesters last year were actually asking for the death penalty for rape. Uh, in a sense, many of them were not really thinking about what the death penalty means. They were simply saying they're sick of rapists getting away with violence, and so they were, uh, they were angry against impunity. And death penalty is there in the Indian law. It is the highest punishment, so they were asking for that. Of course, there were others who were also, you know, kind of really obsessed with the idea of a severe punishment and death penalty and what, what, and so have you. And of course, the, the state also tried to push the idea of CCTV cameras and so on. How did we respond to that when we were part of this movement? First thing we did was, in the movement of which we were a part, was to uh, try and find a slogan that would resonate with people, which would say some of what the movement itself was saying, but which would take things away from the single-minded focus on the death penalty. Because we noticed that while there were many, many people, many thousands of people uh, you know, with these death penalty placards, there were also many thousands of first-time protesters with no exposure whatsoever to the women's movement or the left movement or anything like that, who had placards against victim blaming, which was not in the context of that specific horrific rape, but which was more general. It was about saying, don't tell us what kind of clothes we should be wearing, don't tell women what to wear, tell men not to rape, tell men how to behave. They were persuasive and angry placards, posters, so creative, so many of them, including some by men. We saw one boy uh, painting a poster and holding it up on his own in which he said, uh, we men can wear shirts which show off our biceps and nobody's going to tell us you are in danger of being raped. 
So he, he tried to think about, you know, uh, the fact that clothes have nothing to do with rape. So there was all this happening and there was tremendous anger against every victim-blaming remark that politicians across the board were doing. We've had a minister in BJP government in Madhya Pradesh just now say something about how some rapes are right and some rapes are wrong. And, you know, this is also pretty common. You have uh, U.S. senators doing it, you have Tony Abbott doing it, you have so many people doing it. So what we did was try and see what would resonate with, what would help to sort of bring into focus this aspect of the protest. And one of the slogans that sort of happened out here in the middle of this, where it was difficult to hear yourself think, the only slogan around was the death penalty slogan, nothing else. So when we went there, it was difficult to open your mouth and say anything else because it, you couldn't hear or th yourself think for a while. But then some uh, young women started raising the slogan of women want freedom. And then they would do variations on that. Women want freedom to study, freedom to go to college, freedom on the streets, freedom on the buses, freedom on the trains. And then it started off into, you know, freedom from the uh, caste panchayats, the caste bodies that uh, do honor killings in India. Very soon we found that we were saying freedom from the cops, that is, uh, cops are these caste bodies. And there were girls responding, absolutely first-time protesters, hundreds of them, responding with freedom from Baap, which means father. So Baap se bhi azadi, bhai se bhi azadi, no? freedom from our brothers, freedom from our fathers, things like that. And then we could, after a whole uh, lot of that, we found that if we started to speak, people would stop and listen. And then we would talk about the different contexts in which rape happens and how your outrage is happening against this incident in Delhi. Uh, and one incident uh, which, which has enraged you so much, but uh, you know, th think about the rapes which you don't even hear about, because here at least the media is here, the media is talking about it day in and day out, uh, when Dalit women are raped, oppressed caste women are raped because they are Dalit, or when Kashmiri women or women from the northeast of India are raped by the army, or women in central India of Chhattisgarh are raped by the police in police custody, you don't even get to hear about it. So we would, we had posters with the, uh, about these incidences also, so we talked about that. And one of the slogans that really became really popular was about women's liberation being linked up with everybody's liberation. The slogan was Nari Mukti Sabki Mukti, which means women's liberation, everybody's liberation. So people would, uh, you know, shout both slogans first. They would say Nari Mukti Sabki Mukti, and then they would say Sabki Mukti Nari Mukti. Lots of slogans like that, which are, uh, which have been part of the women's movement and the left movement especially, but suddenly they had this much wider resonance. And there are three women researchers in Mumbai who have written a book not about this movement. In fact, I read the book after the first few months of this movement and suddenly found that it resonated so much. It could have been the manifesto for much of what we were doing uh, in Delhi. Uh, it was a, it's a book called Why Loiter? And if anybody is interested in looking for an interesting book about violence against women in India, that's an interesting book to read. It's not the usual thing that you'll find. It's not chock, flock, chock full of sh uh, shocking statistics. It is actually uh, talking about Mumbai, which is supposed to be a safer city generally and talking about what it is uh, that women feel what makes women vulnerable in public spaces even in a city like Mumbai these women in an interview I noticed that a couple of them had studied on an American campus so one of them uh, you know talking about the differences between say America and India said that well uh, I was actually probably closest to being in danger of violence myself on the American campus because uh, there was a serial rapist out on the loose and he hadn't been caught and uh, there was a very real danger there, very close to uh, the bone. But she said that uh, in India it's different. In India, the kind of uh, uh, concern which occupies a large part of women's minds, 
you know across classes in india in public spaces is and in uh, even in your family environment in your community and so on is the pressure to appear respectable because you are asked to justify your presence in especially in public spaces you are asked to justify why you out here do you have a reason to be out here how are you dressed who are you with in their book they talk about instances of girls coming home with a boyfriend uh, but they won't get the uh, they won't you know the boyfriend may be ready to walk with her uh, till the till her the gate of her house because the last stretch near her house may be dark and may be unsafe but she'll say no because she'll say she'll feel that then her family will see her community will see her neighbors will see and then they will comment on her character in this book there's a passage about how they frame the question of women's right to loiter to do nothing in public space without answering but not only women's rights then they also extended it to the rights of they talked about the ways in which the police often profiles um, uh, working class men poor unemployed working class men who are out on the public street just their very presence means that they are some kind of source of danger so they are profiled muslim men are profiled and so on this is the passage it is only when the city belongs to everyone that it can ever belong to all women the unconditional claim to public space will only be possible when all women and all men can walk the streets without being compelled to demonstrate purpose or respectability for women's access to public space is fundamentally linked to the access of all citizens equally crucially we feel the litmus test of this right to public space is the right to loiter especially for women across classes loiter without purpose or meaning loiter without being asked what time of day it was why we were there what we were wearing and whom we were with so um this was some of what we were doing in uh, the movement in delhi as well uh, talking about uh, how to expand the spaces so even when we were talking about violence in public spaces or the sense of constraint that women feel in public spaces we were talking about the need to safeguard women's freedom without fear uh, this phrase sort of happened in a speech that i gave on december 18th at the house of the delhi chief minister and uh, i didn't even know that somebody had done a video recording of the speech and uploaded it the speech had gone viral there are more than 50000 views of that speech now i think and uh, it it went viral and it resonated huge i started getting messages from young women saying thank you for saying what you did the thing that they connected with was that i had talked about the fact that we don't want to hear this word protection that women want protection because in the name of protection immediately what happens is that women's own freedoms are taken away especially in india this is very much a problem where families will immediately tighten up uh, you know hostels uh, will tighten up on curfews families will say oh we we won't send you out to study to another city and so on and so forth you lose your freedoms every time the threat of violence uh, appears in front of you i'd said in that speech that we don't want you to take away our freedom in the name of protecting us we want you to protect our freedom without fear and then we talked about the freedom without fear of so many other communities the right of people to be to to be free as free citizens without experiencing uh, the fear of profiling or the any other kind of fear fear of violence how did we talk about the police and so on because yes that did occupy a large part of uh, the demands that we put forward we tried to see it as an issue of how to make the state accountable for instance if one says that the state has to be accountable to ensuring that workers uh, get better wages i don't think we would be seen as being complicit with the state would we but then uh, why is it that if we say the state should construct more shelters or the states or the state's police should be accountable that we should know how it's functioning and we, we it should be able to show us that it is functioning in the way we would like it to so in fact when people started talking about cctv cameras we said we don't need cctv anywhere except in the police stations we do need them there 
Yeah, it, it was serious. I believe it was actually serious. It was very seriously put forward in a charter of demands that the, uh, that the movement, movement adopted, saying that uh, the, we, 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 we want to know what the police, are they registering complaints immediately or are they sending women away? Or, uh, you know, we've had policemen making comments about women's, how they're dressed and, say, you know, themselves sexually harassing uh, rape survivors who've come in to file complaints. Among other things, when one talked about freedom in India, the thing that we needed to talk about then was the caste structure and the caste system because patriarchy is really deeply interwoven with caste in India and caste is not some cultural thing out there. Caste is very much a material reality because caste is the way in which certain sections of laborers are fixed to certain kinds of labor. So very largely you will find that the uh, sanitation work, which is, I'm just giving you one instance, the most obvious instance, which is that sanitation work, which is the dirtiest job, and which in India still involves a whole lot of manual cleaning of excreta, which is supposedly illegal, but it survives in various forms. Uh, this is largely done by the uh, so-called untouchable Dalit caste. The caste structure is still uh, very much a part of organizing labor in India, organizing workers in India. Uh, there's no running away from that, although, of course, you may find workers from upper castes as well. Uh, there's, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that's not the case, but I am saying that uh, one can't understand caste without understanding it in the context of labor. And uh, if you look at how uh, patriarchies operate, uh, there's a great deal of anxiety about maintaining the caste integrity. And you can't do that without ensuring that then the norms of who you're allowed to marry are maintained. And so that inevitably ensures that you have to control uh, who women are allowed to have relationships with and who they're allowed to marry. So control on women's sexuality and reproduction. In, an, in addition, of course, to the fact that then it is also tied up this caste hegemony will also be tied up with, her, with land relations. A dominant community, for instance, in Haryana next to Delhi, would be under strain now because there are greater claims on the land by other communities as well. Now women have finally secured the right to inherit ancestral property. It happened quite late in the day, I think in the very late 90s, but it has happened now. Now these forces, they are represented by these caste panchayats, these khap panchayats, are deeply opposed to, they've led campaigns against and they have even gotten ruling parties in state governments to pass laws in their state assemblies depriving women of their right to inherit property. It's another thing that these have not become law in India because the uh, president didn't give assent to these laws, but the very fact that they commanded that much political support to be able to get those laws passed in Punjab and Haryana, uh, this happened. Now, why do they do that? Uh, why, how is that linked to, say, honor killings and caste? Uh, because they realize that if the woman marries either outside the caste or even uh, of her own choice, you know, some, it could be within the same community, but it's of her own choice. When she's made that choice, she is much more likely to then claim her share of the land, which is inherited, which is ancestral, and that that will mean a division of the land, that will mean an erosion of their control of a small section of people who do control the land. Uh, so they don't want women making any claims on this. They control the young men, and since there's so much unemployment, the young men are dependent on the older people who do control the land. They actually uh, use some of those young men to conduct these honor killings. What I'm trying to say is that even something like honor killings in the Indian context, I'm sure it's the same in other parts of the world, should not be seen as something that is a cultural thing alone. It is uh, structural. I'm not saying that in a very easy, causative kind of fashion, but the point is that you can't resist it and you can't fight it without understanding it as part of the uh, kinds of social and economic relations in that uh, in, in wherever it is. And 
so when the slogan of uh, freedom therefore actually hit very hard also at uh, at the at the at, at the attempts to control uh, women in their private space so you see it was a slogan being raised in the context of freedom on the streets but then it very soon became about freedom from the father freedom from the brother freedom from this control inside the home freedom from being told who you can marry and who you can't or whether you should marry or you should not i mean all of that so this division between the violence in the private sphere and violence in the public sphere was also broken by this slogan which united both and which could talk about both and which quickly brought the spotlight back into the kinds of uh, control and i'm not saying that everybody for instance a lot of the youngsters who were participating in these huge mobilizations would raise the slogans young men and then would come up later and i've had these conversations with several of them there one of them i'll tell you who came down and sat and said um i raise these slogans but i'm really worried that if my sister wants this kind of freedom won't it make her more insecure and then of course we talked about the fact that actually he was feeling insecure and he did he did admit that he said yes it's true what if she marries outside the community what will happen and what if he doesn't treat her right i said yes but what if she marries in the community and he doesn't treat her right what would that be would you know you would have thought okay problem solved she's married but you know clearly it wouldn't be how would you deal with that so we talked all this out i asked him at the end of that conversation this particular young man did you ever think about any of this before before this movement and he said no it never occurred to me i never thought about my sister and myself and how differently we are treated in the family because his first question to me was if she behaves the way i do won't she be in greater danger yeah so so you know so i said that well great that you, uh, you know at least there was this crack this chink in the way in which in 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 the citadel of uh, patriarchal ideology <laughs> and thinking where you know you feel, the things that in which uh, people felt comfortable it suddenly started feeling uncomfortable and gritty the skin of patriarchy suddenly wasn't sitting so comfortably anymore and so that's fine that's great so we can't be responsible for everything in the movement and we can't be responsible for everything the state does one last thing which i'd like to address in the indian context often this question comes up that uh, okay so there's all these feudal survivals and these uh, you know these ideas about uh, you know of, of our, how women should behave and so on so what are you when you say freedom what kind of freedom are you this has been asked even by some of our comrades as well are you talking about that westernized freedom and of course if it's someone on the left they'll be asking oh, uh, you know capitalist freedom is that what one is talking about uh, the freedom of the market it's interesting because capitalism as marx has always recognized is something that has a very complex relationship with many things and for instance with patriarchy capitalism is actually of course it's deeply implicated in patriarchy where women are concerned it has conflicting impulses it wants to draw women into the workforce but at the same time it wants to subsidize itself by making women do domestic work and so it is also interested in the domestic discipline of the household and in maintaining that and i think that it's impossible to talk about violence without understanding uh, how violence actually plays out in the context of all of this but one thing i do think about that i've had left theorists in india try to say violence is structural in, in the indian you know kind of feudal context but it's superstructural in the advanced capitalist countries and i don't agree i'm just thinking about why all this absurd misogynistic remarks by politicians in so many countries you know australia america britain all of that isn't it somewhat to do at least with the fact that you are compelled now to you know impose these austerity measures to cut back on welfare and so on and you then have to repersuade women to bear burdens which they've been trying to shed and so part of that is about saying good women bad women what happens to bad women what happens to good women good rapes and bad rapes 
and uh, so on and so forth that certainly to understand those those remarks can't just be seen as some loony phenomenon some loony politicians making silly statements they are more than that and they are certainly reflect some of the anxieties ideological anxieties of rulers as well when i think about how, what freedom means i say that yes in india we say the right of a woman the freedom of a woman to wear a skirt to wear jeans without being told oh you're wearing westernized clothing and that's why you asked to be raped of course we were talking about that freedom at the same time we would also think would we not about the fact that even the companies that sell you certain kinds of clothes uh, also will tell you what kind of bodies you need to have in order to wear those kinds of clothes and therefore women even in advanced capitalist societies or women who uh, you know the, the markets don't make you feel freer they make you feel more of um, more anxious they don't make you feel free and happy in yourself they make you feel anxious about what is wrong with you which you can set right by buying this that or the other or dressing in a certain way certainly one is not saying that uh, freedom equal equals capitalism the opposite it also doesn't mean that asking for freedom makes you somehow implicated in capitalism not at all we know for instance that workers are less free when they are shackled in certain kinds of feudal or semi feudal bondages are they not i mean india has several of those kinds of bondage that uh, don't allow workers to be entirely free capitalism does set workers free in a nominal sense to be employed by whoever they like at the same time we know the op, you know the other side of that capitalist freedom means that uh, workers uh, are also free from all their <laughs> or from owning any any means of production whatsoever so it's free in in a double sense well women also are then freed in a double sense but we don't ask that uh, therefore it might be safer to keep things the old way and we certainly don't say then that a worker by demanding more rights within capitalism is somehow getting co-opted by capitalism obviously not i think it's perfectly possible to have a larger revolutionary perspective and goal and as part of that to fight for the range of rights of women as democratic uh, democratic rights of women as citizens and uh, as uh, as individuals and as people and as and as and as the collective of women and to keep making more demands on uh, the state as well demands that are not restricted only to policing and so forth but also to expand that to say we want and which we've done in india we've actually put on the agenda the demands for safe shelters for women and rape crisis centers and so on a whole range of that there is a uh, imbalance there is also other consequences of this movement uh, in the sense that you also had the this extreme right wing party the uh, party that is in power in india now also playing with the anxieties about violence against women but deploying them to profile the minority uh, one of their allies in tamil nadu uh, used this uh, anxiety to profile the dalit community this is the pattali makkal katchi in tamil nadu which uh, uh, organized violence against dalit uh, against dalit saying dalit men are marrying varniyar women which is women of the uh, It's, it's an intermediate caste so they said oh they men are marrying our women and so uh, they used an intercaste marriage as a pretext to mobilize violence against the entire dalit community in the same way in muzaffarnagar near delhi you found the bjp using the same khap panchayats the ones that do the honor killings to raise the slogan save our daughters and save our sisters it's the same khap panchayats that kill the daughters and the sisters for marrying who they like but uh, this slogan was raised in order to say that the muslims are conducting a love jihad note the words it's it's linked both with islamophobia which says that every muslim is a potential jihadi but clearly even if the muslim is actually somebody uh, is a young man who may be your your daughter's friend or even if he doesn't have any relationship with your daughter just just the fact that he's a muslim young man he can be profiled as a as a source of sexual danger 
and sexual anxiety. And because of our caste and community system in India, there's, and, the, and the anxiety that is already there. I mean, Kumkum Sangari, who's a feminist historian, says that patriarchies are a very hospitable space for racism, casteism, and communalism. And actually, that's the case. And they, they played in this very hospitable space to profile the Muslim community. They had a leader who's a right-hand man of the man who's now prime minister, making speeches, electoral speeches, which are on record, available on video, in which he said the entire Muslim community is a community that rapes our mothers and daughters. If you want to see them put down, you better vote for us. And this is, you know, part of what worked, uh, which are the ways in which they tried to consolidate Hindus across caste uh, against the Muslim community by, by playing on these anxieties. We are very aware, aware of the fact that the law that we achieved in India, slight improvement on the rape law, is an improvement in some ways, but it is you know, uh, several steps back in, in some other ways. The distinction between consent and non-consent, which should make the difference between rape and not rape, uh, is something which the Indian law blurs and which uh, this kind of right-wing campaign also blurs, where it is able to conflate consensual relationships with rape and play on, uh, you know, gendered and, and uh, patriarchal anxieties about women's increasing autonomy. So we uh, tackled all of that by continuously campaigning with and uh, building solidarities with, building, uh, reaching out to a large uh, section of uh, people, especially women, who are seeking to assert their rights to greater autonomy and freedom. That was Kavita Krishna, who was speaking about capitalism, misogyny and sexual violence from an Indian feminist perspective, and she spoke at the Socialist Alliance National Conference in 2014 in Sydney. Feminism and class struggle. If you like our work, become a supporter of Green Left Weekly from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support. Next up, you will be hearing from Pranav Jani speaking about the rise of the far right in India. Today's panel on the rise of the far right in, in India. Um, I'm Pranav Jani. I'm from Ohio. Um, I've been to these conferences for a long time, and it's, it's great that we're focusing on this topic because the rise of Modi in India um, is something that all socialists and Marxists and anyone who wants to fight fascism needs to be really aware of, right? Um, and sometimes, for some reason that I still can't figure out, India and South Asia fall out of the picture of the U.S. left. I remember a few months ago, after making a big stink about it, <laughs> um, when people started talking about Modi um, in my circles, they started saying Modi is also an example of Trump. Now, in the current moment, we can link those together, if we like, as part of a, rat, a wave of the far right. But people have to understand that Modi preceded Trump. And when you talk about the BJP and Hindutva and Hindu fundamentalism, that has a long history of being organized that has nothing to do with Trump, right? And so, but has more to do with, you know, long organizing of, of Nazis in this country or the far right in this country or that sort of thing, right? And so sometimes we in the U.S. left 
make comparisons that keep centering the U.S. And it's important to do because it's the, it's the biggest imperialist power in the world. But there's a way in which it can produce a U.S. centrism that actually isn't helpful in understanding what are happening in other places, right? And so this is, this is a bit of a challenge because if you went through the U.S. public school system as I did, we don't learn any of this stuff. <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge, but it's something we have to we have to do. So I wanted to kind of say that as a preamble before introducing our speaker. Um, we're very honored to have Rohit Prajapati um, speak today. Um, uh, you know, he's he's he lives in India. He's he's visiting the U.S. We wanted to come to this conference, and we said, please speak. Um, and we're very happy that he's speaking. Uh, he's an activist, a research, and a writer. And I'll just give you a little introduction uh, before Rohit Bhai speaks. Uh, Rohit Prajapati is an engineer by training. He's been an activist since his college days, engaging with trade union, environmental, water pollution, occupational health, organic farming, forests and indigenous people, as well as defense of civil liberties, peace and justice against the rising tide of fascism in India. His socio-environmental activism connects the local struggles constantly with the critique of the capitalist mode, model of development while proposing alternatives in the context of socio-political challenges peculiar to India. Rohit Bhai is a co-founder and lead member of Pariyavaran Suraksha Samiti, a member of the People's Union for Civil Liberties, the PUCL, which everyone should find out more about, and has also been involved with the Narmada Bachao Andolan, the Save Narmada movement, and the People's Commission on Shrinking Democratic Spaces, PCSDS. Um, the Narmada Bachao Andolan movement, if you're familiar with Arundhati Roy's writings, um, she gave a certain prominence to that movement by writing about it extensively uh, very early on. Um, but, but of course, it, it's much more beyond Arundhati Roy, as she herself would say. Um, Rohit Bhai has also been a member of Radical Socialists, another group that people can, can look up in India. And with, um, I'm, I've been lucky to have some interactions over the last five or six years. He's part of anti the anti-nuclear movement in India. In fact, he played a crucial role in a decade-long struggle of 152 villages against the Westinghouse Electric Corp Corporation, a U.S. corporation, and the government of India to stop a 6,000 megawatt nuclear power plant in Mitrivirdi, Mitivirdi, uh, Gujarat, um, with the dual strategy of active public participation of local villagers and legal intervention in the environment court. They forced the ultimate withdrawal of the project, saving fertile land and livelihoods, while also killing the momentum of nuclear energy. Now they're trying to combine nearby shipbreaking yard worker struggle with the villagers' anti-nuclear struggle. Rohit Prajapati also co-authored with Dr. Tripti Shah an article in October 2013 called India Laboratory of Fascism, Capital, Labor, and Environment in Modi's Gujarat. How is the fascism of the Sangh Parivar, um, the collection of organizations that makes up the Hindu right, going to be utilized for capital? Uh, six years today, this topic is still very much uh, valid, but in a different scenario. So, um, Rohit Bhai.
You are listening to Green Left Weekly Summer Programming on FreeCR. We are bringing you a discussion on the rise of the far right in India by Rohit Prajapati and Pranav Jani. Rohit picks up where Pranav has left off on how the far right is entering the Indian consciousness. Let me start with the word which we use a communist is called false consciousness. When we find people not making their choice in terms of their day-to-day life and they vote for far right and they vote for fascist group. And we always think in that term. So today I'm going to present, which I already delivered broadly in a longer session, that how people thought it, how people think, and how people live with those fascist forces and to be part of that. We may have theory and we may theorize those things, but how people perceive it and why people are in forefront with that. Here is the party where you will find in power getting electoral vote, electoral mandate, and also on the ground very powerful. These two things go together. That's quite, quite, quite different. And uh, just t- take you back a little bit, how people pursued, in which framework people supported in last election and before that election to a BJP with huge vote and seat vote, in spite of number of action which was taken when they took first power with good mandate in 2014, they took almost many open, transparent, anti-labor, anti-people actions, and they were able to get away with that. Even if you just look at recent election, and if you just look at last five years, and if you just map the India in terms of various struggles on the land issue, anti-nuclear struggle, on environment, on working class issue, on issue of women's right, if you just map and plot those things on the ground in terms of number, in terms of mobilization, in terms of articulation, in terms of fight back, in terms of not just on the ground, also in various courts. If you just look at that scenario and you just look at the result, it's completely contradictory and you feel very worried with that. That when you look at them on the ground, it looks like that people are fighting the government and they are able to articulate, they are able to uh, uh, come up very strongly in big number. And when the result comes, it's completely say something else. And that's more worrying. So in that context, I just want to throw some lights that how people lived with this and why people are thinking in this way. Because my main focus will be that how you are going to intervene in that reality. Are you going to use the old method or you really want to relate with the people differently when you talk about electoral politics? Still, even now, after they came into power with huge mandate uh, in terms of percentage of vote, in terms of seats, even after taking oath, again struggle has started on the ground. Same struggle on the ground in the same way. So that raised very fundamental questions that when issue of struggle comes, people are on the ground blunt enough to fight back the fascists and the government both. But when election comes, something else happens. So I'll just put that frame and I just want to elaborate on that quickly. 
look at the broad history and just to be very blunt that this party has practically demonstrated the Leninist party concept in terms of building up the party, in terms of uh, building up the grassroots level networks. Actually, they had practiced the uh, Leninist theory on ground. Uh, what is to be done? Uh, let me just say that the history, uh, the, uh, even that strategy and tactics during last almost like say 75 or 100 years, the RSS was founded, which is the main organization, Rastriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, in 1925. They were bold enough not to engage them during those days in a freedom struggle. If you just look at that period to keep quiet and to do your own project of Hindutva and building up the nationalism, the, 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 the nation they want, they almost were ready to not to look at that at all and bold enough to keep quiet and doing that work very systematically. That's one, you have to look at that. Second, you can see the partition happen, India-Pakistan. That was the one fertile ground they had. Then issue of Kashmir, which you may not be much aware in detail that there is a struggle going on which asks separation of India and uh, also the Pakistan occupied Kashmir and also uh, India occupied Kashmir. It's very difficult to use these words in India when you say India occupied Kashmir and Pakistan occupied Kashmir. People like us don't mind to use that because we, 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 will, we strongly feel that self-determination right which was uh, there even during the UN agreement it was decided was not followed by the Indian state. So that was one more point. The ruling party which fought, uh, the, the, the previous ruling party, the, big, the biggest opposition now, the Congress who fought, founded during the freedom struggle and fought the freedom struggle and which was the party ruling, imposed emergency in 1975. That time to counter that emergency, there was an alliance with this fascist group called RSS and Jansang, they formed one party called Jansang during those days by Jai Prakash Narayan and uh, the main focus was during that time with also by left, there was dividing left that one party which is called CPIM, left party supported emergency and CPIM opposed it and if you just look at scenario at that time they decided to go together. I'm just making point that how people pursue your so-called tactical strategical issue. And you can see that during that time in 1977, uh, seven, the non-Congress government came in, where this Jansang was part of that government, which now later on became Bharatiya Janata Party, and now we call it a fascist. When you say fascist as communist, you just can't uh, think in terms of that the fascism started in 80s or 90s. It was there since 1925, but to fight back and to remove the Congress in power, the, the party in power, alliance was made. Second step, which was there in 1989, when to keep Congress not to be in power, the person who came out of the Congress party, VP Singh, made an alliance on the right side, the fascists, on the left side, the mainstream left. And they run the government. 
you legitimize and gave a space then and they were not compromising on their points they were very blunt during 1975 anti emergency struggle they were they were not thinking that if we if we will change our stand we'll get more support they were very clear that our main project is to build hindutva and hindutva nationalism that that was it and now just look at back after 1989 the whole issue of globalization where the bjp came into power in one particular state called gujarat which is highly industrialized and you can see the action they were talking about swadeshi in terms of that that they were saying that we don't want foreign investment when they were not in power they were opposing globalization they were opposing number of things in number of ways and they uh, when they took power in particular state they practically demonstrated completely different mm. in terms of investment in terms of labor laws in terms of environment and the whole model of development was demonstrated by them in that particular state and later on they become they they were able to manage to come in power in 2014 and theory of nation is one of the crucial thing which they, and you don't find any of the group there is a number of group of rss they have a different outfit very well planned somebody will talk about ram mandir the temple issue communalism somebody will take people on the track on the ground and somebody will like bjp will electoral politics so there were number of people together doing all this thing and you will find them in division of labor among them to do number if you just look at history of this organization you will not find one issue one issue that's very shocking one issue on which the people issue on which they had made struggle since 1925 whether is a labor issue whether is a environmental issue whether is a women issue almost on all front front if you just look at their action is completely reactionary for ordinary people to believe i'm not talking about the people like us articulate they think that they are practically anti people on practice in spite of that in spite of that they have a one union called bharat uh, bharatiya uh, uh, bms bharatiya mazdoor sangh which is number 1 in india gradually become number 1 in india and if you just look at their stance and if you talk to their own worker they always feel that on working class issue they are not with us imagine in such scenario to get power in spite of when you uh, they came in power at the center with full majority in 2014 and if you just look at 2014 to 2019 all actions very tough in the sense and to be very honest the bourgeoisie was very comfortable with them after say i can say after uh, 1989 onwards that congress was not able to do reform these people has two thing when they are in power they are able to do number of from action that is one in favor of bourgeoisie second they were very clear on the ground that if there is protest happen it's not only government handles at the government level they have cadre on the ground they have cadre on the ground they have organizers on the ground to company so many time government doesn't come directly to suppress people they have other means to do it and to be very honest to take tough action for bourgeoisie which they were looking for since many years to take an action this government was able to deliver so if you look at in terms of money they mobilize during last election 
it was like 50% resources was belonged to one party, huge amount, and remaining 50% was distributed among the other party. And also one, one more thing, just look at the left. Here is not the country where left was not in power. There are three states where mainstream left was in power. In one state like West Bengal, they were there for almost like 30 years. So if you just look at in that background, in that background the people on the ground felt that nation first. Let's, let's, let's accept it, nation first. If you talk to them in terms of electoral politics, for them nation first, for them on the issue of Kashmir, on the issue of Kashmir, the left was not very clear. The Adi part parties are not clear, very defensive. They say, yeah, they are right, we should think about it, we should talk about no repression, no killing in that area, that's all. They don't want to uh, come out very bluntly and say that we are for self-determination of Kashmir. Mm -hmm. whereas, whereas the RSS from 1925 onwards was not doing any compromise. If you just look at from the lab perspective, they were purists in their project. <laughs> to be very blunt, purists in their project. They, they, they had no plan of just five years, ten years. They were looking for a bigger plan. So if you just look at 1925 during independence after partition, in 1975 during emergency, 1989, then onwards, you can see that they even came out of the government in 1989 on their points on the Ram Mandir temple. And they have only one project, the Hindutva politics, which is ongoing agenda. And you will find them in court, on ground, that's a one major project. Kashmir belonged to us, that's a second project. Third, fight with Pakistan, and also many times as China comes in, that's third. These are the only three project major. Otherwise, if you just look at their practice on ground, almost they are very capable to deliver what practically the uh, international and national bourgeoisie want. Mm. And they are, just look at the last budget, just uh, three, four days back, if you just look at the budget, they were the bold enough, bold enough to take a stand on price rise. They increased the price, not just looking at the international price of the uh, crude, they, uh, 2% SAS was imposed on petrol and diesel, which was a clear-cut rise on petrol and diesel. And when they, they were making point, and during last election, that all debates of Narendra Modi was not on any issue of development. Whereas 2014 was very much on that. 2019, it was not there. And if you just look at 2014 and 19, the percentage of one uh, gone up. And this is a popular mandate, it's worried. What I'm saying is a popular mandate. Now let's come to the repression part of it. How they handle This is not like fascism of Hitler. This is more, much, much, much more. I think the, the Hitler would have sat in his class to uh, study number of things, how to do it. See, intimidation. Intimidation, if you just look at, he has a ready-made label. Yeah, he has a, he has a ready-made label for number of people. If you are fighting for rights of the tribal and other uh, worker and other people on the ground and uh, having militant activity, then you will be labeled as Naxalite. 
I think I'll elaborate later on if you don't know the next slide, what is the main one. And that's a label. If you are radical and if you are Muslim, you are terrorist. If you are not both of them, anti-development, anti-nation, and these tags are ready-made available to put on you. Mass media has been mobilized in favor of that. And they had organized number of intimidation. I'll say it's an undeclared emergency. Oh. And he, he, the Mr. Modi has learned. Modi has learned from last emergency of 1975 of Indira Gandhi, the Congress Party, that it's if you have a declared emergency, then it's problematic to it can be challenged in the court. You can mobilize people because it's already labeled. He's very uncomfortable, uh, undeclared emergency. You can see the campus, you can read our report, recent report, Sinking Democratic Space in Educational Institution. When we organized that testimony, we came out with the report of almost like we covered 19 state and we had a number. Lots of people told us that we will give you in writing, but we don't want our name to be disclosed. We don't want that you should even, by the way, mention if we are identifiable. So intimidation tactics are, lynching is happening. There's, there's a whole uh, lumpen under the ground with the BJP. They, they terrorize people. And if you just look at today's atmosphere, the terrorists says that many TV, they don't need instruction to keep shut up. You don't practically need to announce that shut up without being people like, even I'm telling you, since last three days, people are sending my own calls and me making a point that why you are inviting trouble and going and speaking to the conference <laughs> and why you chose the far right and why you uh, uh, tagging your article of 2013, which is rise of fascism, laboratory of fascism. So they were making advice that please don't do it now. And, and this we are listening from 2013 onwards. They don't, uh, don't talk about all this thing. And it got completely terrorized and they don't, uh, there are a number of defamation cases has been filed against people. There are lots of cases filed against various people, uh, branding them urban luxon and also that large point, just making point before I end, that even judiciary is also terrorizing. I, I practice environment law and labor law both together in various court. I myself can feel the drastically difference in last four, five years the way judges behave mm -hmm. and they, the way judges deliver the judgments and I'm really worried that coming days the way they got the mandate now okay, to be very honest that today the atmosphere is very 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 in demoral situation for the minority they're absolutely trying to negotiate some of the groups are thinking in terms of negotiating the space for the peace by joining them by joining them. And the last I'll just read on the issue of caste. This is upper caste party able to manage the issue of, in spite very casteist party in practice and reality, they were able to completely change the table. People generally of the lower caste and SCNRC never used to vote for them. Even they voted for them. They voted for them this time. And you don't find just voting them, but when you talk to them, you can find that people really want to fight for Modi. When you are in a train, when you are on a flight, I remember, I know by face, so whenever I travel, sometimes you have to hide your face. Because people suddenly will come to you and start arguing with you. That why you are against Modi? Even today, I'm going to visit some of the, my friends here. I know the way they looked at me quite differently. So I want to end here. Why? Yeah.
intervention was intervention aspect while talking to him. Yeah. yeah. How to fight back? Yeah. Okay. Great. So as we said at the beginning, um, we're doing it a little bit differently. So uh, we heard Rohit's presentation. I think you understand in my introduction why I said we're so um, lucky to have him here. Um, and now, we'll, now I'll ask a, ask him a few questions, a little bit in, interview style. Um, Khadija, we did this. Remember in Kashmir, the Kashmir talk, and um, and uh, you know, draw out uh, some more things, and um, you know, and then we'll open it up for for Q and A. All right. So, huh, thanks, thanks very much. And anything you want to add in this session, you know, that we can. Um, but I want to ask you some particular things. So when we were talking earlier, and, and today you talked about how this issue of the Ram Temple um, and the, uh, you know that whole that whole building around a temple in Ayodhya in in northern India, you know, which became a galvanizing force in the 80s, but it's been one of their long uh, projects, right? Um, can you talk a little bit more about how they used that to mobilize people? Um, you know, uh, to their cause, because there may be many people who are religious or whatever, but not necessarily fascists, right? So what did they do to link um, a dominant religious ideology with their organizing? You know, what are some of the things they did um, to make that an effective organizing strategy? But also, if you, if you want, um, how does that link back to the, the freedom movement itself, you know, and um, and uh, Gandhi and the kind of invocation of of, of Ram in that context as well. Um, you know, uh, leading up to the fight against the British. I think they have successfully done that Ram project, Ram Mandir project. If you just look at uh, last 30, 40 years, very systematically, and they have a two fertile ground. Like when we say in India, Gandhi is known as the one person who is respected internationally, nationally, and if you just look at even Gandhi, he used Ram Rajya word. He he has a song called Vaishnavajanto Tene Kahiye Pivan. It's also upper caste one. He's referring to upper caste that if you are a good upper caste person, then you should do what? And he, he, he and, and, and his understanding of the caste was he used to uh, he used to say that Harijan. Person of the God, so that's why you can't tell somebody untouchable. That fertile ground was available to them. And also, if you just look at 15th and 14th century history, the Mughal came into the, uh, that part of India, and in which they looked at that, and you just, they are able to articulate all your issues, like unemployment, everything is because of the Hindu Muslim issue. And, and they are very able to successfully argue. If you ask anybody that, yeah, but they don't have time, so now you should give them more time to talk about it. And the Hindu temple, and to be very honest, we just look at the crisis after 1989 onwards, the way alienation has happened. And I'll tell you, uh, uh, I can just give you an example of Bharatiya Mazdur Shangh. And 1989, just to right, remember the end of the Cold War. <laughs> And so that's a period of massive liberalization um, across the world, but particularly it's known in India as this period of, uh, you know, just ec vast economic liberalization. So capital can now flow everywhere, right? So it was promised as Sardi Indra. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, so at that period of the end of the Cold War, 
there's a promise, they call it the peace dividend. There'll be no more Cold War, so now there'll be plenty for everyone. But instead, it was the vast proliferation of capitalism running rampant all over the globe, right? And so in that context, India has a particular... Yeah, and you, you find alienation. Actually, during those days, I read again the uh, Marx theory of alienation. You can feel worker completely alienated because of that, and because of that particular crisis, then onwards. We just look at how they organize working class. Uh, we organize our meeting at the gate. We mobilize workers on the street. We organize workers on the various corners to fight back with the slogans. They don't do that. I'll just tell you about how they relate number of things in terms of alienation and in terms of looking at, we call it false causes, how they deal with that. And I think it's very crucial and we were in successful in number of areas because we use, the, not use the same tactic, but that is what the way we would like to relate on various issues. You will find meeting organized in community on workers' issue. They don't want because they want to talk to them on number of issues. They just don't want, they don't organize only on the issue of particular workers' type. They'll also talk about what is happening in their personal life, uh, religions, various festivals, because festivals are very crucial when you have a, such a crisis situation. You always get some strength on that abstract feeling that somebody is going to take care of that and they are able to successfully theorizing that. And you find them always there in community, mm -hmm. in day to life. life. And, and they, they, they take all issue in the community. You mm -hmm. don't find, they will come on the street, on the corner. But we go from the gate to corner to the street and strike. These people from the community on the issue, any issue comes community, then come to the street and the corner. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if that relation has built up, and, and you can see that that so use... religion becomes a, one very, of the ways... And also when the, the partition was the major issue, partition. And they used partition very systematically. Uh, actually, they were having problem. I born and brought up in RSS family, an Indian side family. I, I was in RSS since uh, I was like 15. I was like a cadder, that's why I'm wear half, half pen because I told them that again I'm going to wear a half pen because RSS used to wear a half pen. Now they have a full pen. In the last two years they changed the dress. So I remember that the way they used to talk. I'll just give you an example of what I did. I remember in one training, I've been to the fourth training camp of RSS. The fourth training camp, they say the Bajpayee, uh, which is considered as model, uh, so-called moderate face of the BJP, and they have a number of faces. They are okay with all face. It's like a restaurant where you find all type of dishes. <laughs> Non-veg, everything. Latin American, African, everything. And that will be a special dish. So I remember the Bajpur used to quote and tell us in the training that uh, we don't want to come into power unless we have power on the ground. Yeah. Just look at that. Unless we have power on the ground, you, otherwise you will not be able to make changes. And if you are not able to make changes, people will throw out. Very precise. Just, just look at this sentence. It's very crucial. That if you are not on the ground, and if you come on the power, they said there is possibility that you come on the power, but you don't have the groundwork. He said that you should have a ground first, come on the power, then, then you will be able to deliver the way you want to do. Mm -hmm. You just only government cannot uh, implement certain tough decision. You need people support. Popu mm -hmm. He said popular. Mm -hmm. That's one he said. Second, he said that we don't want to recruit everybody in our, our organization. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Only we want to do that they should talk in our language. Mm -hmm. And you will find that left party 
and the uh, uh, the other uh, bourgeois party practically shifted on the right mm-hmm. even left on kashmir they are quite okay in recent election the secularism was missing people were not using it at all mm-hmm. that means instead of they lift uh, they they push uh, this right to left so religion was in a partition mm-hmm. partition is like hindu muslim even cricket match yeah. everything is so and the hindu temple become big issue i'll tell you mm-hmm. even even our left union people say that we don't want to discuss ram temple hindu muslim we are with them on this nation first wow. kashmir and hindu muslim and mm-hmm. and that ram temple is work i think it will be long run mm-hmm. now if we will make a breakthrough because now they have a majority mm-hmm. if they don't do me on a point then we can use that to explain that these people are trying to divide you mm-hmm. by using temple but that you have to do very systematically mm-hmm. so in that sense i'll say that in terms of intervention also very crucial mm-hmm. that they are they are able to i i heard people saying that on land right i am with you mm-hmm. but on election i want modi mm-hmm. nation first the word is called nation first mm-hmm. thanks so so just to just to throw out a few things so people understand exactly the context right so the rss is the cadre organization out of which the hindu rights various organizations emerge the bjp currently in power is the political arm of that organization so what rohit was describing was growing up in an rss family and actually until the age of 15 I'm, i'm sure you understood but i want to underline what we're actually hearing okay uh, and make sure you know so sorry if i sound like i'm simplifying <laughs> that he grew up in an rss family um i have upper caste relatives who also are pro rss and you know etc right they grew up in that family it goes under the name of hindu culture it goes under the name of strength right um and and those sorts of things we need a strong india we need to build ourselves they do physical exercises and training and things like that right um it's out of that and so there what rohit was describing hearing atal bihari bajpai who later became prime minister of india saying at that time if we take political power that's nothing if we don't have power on the ground so this is so so trump right now is it okay if i yeah. so trump right now is giving an open door to the fascists right so now we're seeing nazis on the street in the way we never saw them before imagine if trump himself was tr- going to those training camps back in the day when he was far from power and telling people these things and that's why rohit is saying Hitler would have gone to the RSS school <laughs> meaning they are so systematically building for this since 1925 and in fact avoiding the popular struggles in order to hammer down building this self-conscious cadre and and all of that right so I want to kind of um you know make that point right and then so the religion stuff comes in with the uh, alienation after 1989 um let me ask you a question We do a lot of work around environmental. Oh, how, how much time do we have for this section? You got five minutes. Okay, so I'll switch to something else. Um, you do a lot of. So what you described is in the mass mobilization you do. One of the things that it does is it breaks that consciousness, right? Where people are seem to be in struggle in the day to day, but at election time they'll vote for BJP, right? So I wanted to ask you. kind of a two part question the general one is well I'll be very specific 
in the environmentalist activism that you do. Um, can you just talk about that activism a little bit and then how it connects to this issue of the far right? I'll just take even that liberty that uh, when we uh, work on various issues, to be very honest, we are very clear from the day one that we will not talk about the only issue-based struggle at all. Whether it's environment, whether it's worker, I'll just give you a very quick example that when we had a one big struggle in uh, one company uh, made a lockout. It's a 100-year-old company in India and Gujarat, well-known, Kuljoti Limited. We uh, uh, organized number of meetings, not just uh, on the street, uh, on a corner, but we also organized at a community base. We made a point to the people that we need meeting uh, of your relatives, your friends, to discuss your issue so that they understand that why we need this rice. We practically did. When we went to the negotiation on table with the government, we form a committee in which the family member who are not part of, who are not a worker, they're part of the committee. An advisory form sitting outside. Even the friends who supported the movement, we also included them. And we, we had seen that how that process helped in terms of consciousness. That's a very crucial thing. If you don't do it, and we always say, no, later on, during freedom struggle, the left thought that it's, it's time to just kick out the British, fine. During emergency, left thought that, let's kick out Congress. And now people think that let's kick out Narendra Modi. And we also fought one struggle in terms of electoral, which is called, uh, we have a one provision during election where you can vote none of the above. If you don't like any candidate, there is a button which you can push. People like us fought for it. Because we don't want that, it's, it's like that between them, otherwise you are not going to build up your own project at all. Because it always lesser evilism. You can say in lesser evilism to counter BJ, uh, Congress, the ruling party, you provided a space to BJP to grow. So the, the smaller evil become the bigger evil and you do that. So the, in last election, uh, we got almost like uh, more than 1% vote as a not a vote. And this is a huge number. Like in Gujarat, where the, it's a laboratory of fascism, laboratory of the BJP, the democracy, where we got 4 lakh people. Four, four lakh means four. Uh, ten, four hundred thousand. Four hundred thousand. Not four thousand. No. One lakh is ten thousand. Uh, one million is ten, ten lakh. Four million. Four million. Four million. Yeah. Imagine, and that number, if you just can plot on the map, where the struggles were on, and if that space was not available to them, I don't think that. So now let's come to the environment. Why that happened? See, uh, I'll give you two examples where we are involved. Like one, one is Meethi uh, Vedi, where we talked about the anti-nuclear struggle, where American government decided to have nuclear power plant uh, in 2007. And uh, we engaged people. There is a one uh, ship breaking yard next to that, where you find migrant workers there in huge number, like 40,000. Even the uh, villagers also part of that. When we started working in that area on environmental issue, uh, we, uh, we, we, we do use uh, activism in the court also because you can't engage court unless because they don't the judges doesn't come have no space to come in public meeting they don't come to your seminar so we always use sometimes judicial activism to go and address them all philosophical aspect and all number of even beyond the law and we argue the matter so meeting nuclear power issue from the day one we made a point that we will not be hurriedly imposing agenda like issue of gender, because there was upper caste people in that area, issue of Hindu-Muslim also was there, 
There was also a rich farmer, small farmer was there. So we processed that from the day one. And a lot of people used to ask us in during the day, you focus on environment, you focus on anti-nuclear. We said that, sorry. And in the beginning, it was the slogan, if you just look at the process, you can find a number of articles on that. You can see the slogan we started by saying that not in my, not in my backyard was the beginning, mm -hmm. not in my country second, nowhere in the world. And mm -hmm. we never made that point mm -hmm. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You can yourself can see the various articulation, TV interviews by the same people, grassroots level uh, villager to do that. Mm -hmm. And second, I'll see that when you do the process, women, the upper caste women had no chance to come out on the street because they are not allowed to uh, work outside their home. When they go out, they wear that. Those women, when we won the battle, you can see the reaction of those women looking at us and say, yeah, we won. It's look that why they are upset because they thought that now we will not be on the street. We will not be allowed. To. But because of the point which we had an alliance with the feminist group on that, mm -hmm. They told us that no, our battle is not over. We'll continue on other aspects which they used to do from the day one. Mm -hmm. So if you combine that, and also industrial pollution thing, uh, on the working class and the pollution, many times you can find that workers uh, against community on environment issue. When you close down factory, we have two examples which people can read. One is hammer chemical industry, where workers uh, fought raise first that issue of pollution of hazardous dumping outside, then about their health. Mm -hmm. And in spite of that, struggle continue, and they will be able to combine both. Second is Sardasar over there, mm -hmm. where you will be surprised to know that the, we had a union there on the dam site, and the people who fought, like us also, I'm part of both the union and, uh, and Narmada Bachandra, where those who are opposing dam, sharing the same office, same postal address, same one number, marching together. Imagine mm -hmm. the workers go on strike where tribal support and uh, the, 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 because of the subversion issue, and you can see that marching together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, on environmental aspect, to be very honest, I, when when I go to the environmental group, I'm branded as trade unionist. When I go to trade unionist meeting in the mainstream lab, they call it me I'm an environmentalist. <laughs> so that's a scenario. Mm -hmm. That was Rohit. Prajapati and Pranav Jani talking about the rise of the far-right in India from the Socialism 2019 conference in Chicago. The audio is available at wearemany.org. Tune in next week for more great summer programming with Green Left Weekly Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper that brings you an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work... Become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-222-2222.